Let's bow for a moment in prayer as we come to God's Word. Dear Lord, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, for his ministry to our minds and to our hearts this morning, that we may understand, Lord, and accept, and indeed that the Holy Spirit may apply that word to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that uh, as the sovereign Lord who knows all things, who knows the deepest recesses of every heart, we pray, Lord, that you will apply your word today as it is needed in each of our lives. <clears throat> so help us, Lord, and bless us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> William Cooper, or we sometimes would say Cowper, but actually it's supposed to be pronounced Cooper, I'm told. William Cooper was an 18th century influential poet and hymn writer. He wrote many wonderful hymns. Uh, he was a godly man, but he suffered from acute and deep depression, even at times despairing of life. He was greatly helped by John Newton, uh, who took him under his wing. And in fact, Newton and he together, they uh, wrote a hymn book, a hymn book called Only Hymns. Uh, you can still get a copy of it uh, these days. And they wrote many wonderful hymns together. But Cooper was ultimately sustained in his dark days, in his darkest days, by his faith in Christ. He trusted God's love and God's faithfulness, even when life seemed to have no meaning and seemed to be utterly empty. And uh, it was he who wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. And in that hymn, there's a verse that starts like this, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. And Cooper was convinced of this, that had he not had that faith in Jesus Christ firmly and deeply planted in his own heart, had he not that firm conviction in a God of love, a God of grace, a God of, a God of, of sovereign care for his children, he wouldn't have made it through. Blind unbelief. If he had taken the road of unbelief, that surely would have led him to destruction. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. And if you want a commentary on this last part of John chapter 12, I would say to you that there in those lines that Cooper wrote, there is this succinct commentary that blind unbelief is sure to err. It's staggering how people who were so well versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, people who were experts in God's Word, if we can put it like that, people who knew the law of God, people who were aware of the promised Messiah to come, could so misunderstand Jesus or could miss out completely on the appearance and the work of the promised Savior. And throughout John's gospel, we have witnessed the constant opposition of the Jews, and particularly the Jewish leaders, to the one who had come as Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And here again, we witness it in this last part of John chapter 12, where the Lord Jesus speaks of his impending death, and he speaks of it in terms of him being lifted up from the earth. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. And at once that, that provoked a, a reaction in the crowd. That pro- provoked a reaction in the Jews round about. Uh, because they come back at him and they begin to argue with him. Verse 37 here, I think is a, is a very sad and a devastating commentary upon this attitude of unbelief and rebellion. It says this, though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him. Though they had so much evidence, still they didn't believe. And yet how up to date, how modern, how contemporary is that? Because it may be that even in this congregation this morning, there are those who have witnessed the work of God in the lives of others, perhaps even in their own lives, in his mercy and grace, but are still in a place of unbelief. You know, we were encouraged last Sunday night so much by the testimonies and encouraged by some of the conversations that we had because there were uh, in our congregation then folk who were unsaved, but who plainly admitted, clearly saw the work of God in the lives of others. And yet they themselves still unsaved. So it's such, not such an unusual phenomenon that people have the evidence before them, and yet they will not believe. That's what we have here. And as Jesus begins to explain to them what his his destiny is, what his purpose is, what his death is going to be, we find the Jews reacting unfavorably. And I want you to see three things this morning. Uh, And hopefully they're simple and you'll be able to take them home and think about them. But the first picture is a picture of these Jews wrangling with Jesus. Wrangling with Jesus. And I've chosen the word wrangling with care because they were spoiling for a fight. They were spoiling for an argument and in response to Jesus' claim, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, they begin their argument. You can almost hear the tone of criticism and skepticism in their question. We have heard that the Messiah is to abide forever. How then, uh, uh, if you're the Messiah, if you are the Son of Man, you speak of your death. Now, it's a subtle mixture of truth and error. Because the fact is that the Son of Man will abide forever. But it's also true that this Son of Man, this Messiah who was promised, if the Jews had read the Old Testament with their eyes opened, they would see that he was going to abide forever by conquering death, by going through death. And it's John himself who refers us here to Isaiah chapter 53. Obviously, that's what's in his mind as he thinks about this story that he, he, he begins with, who's going to believe our report? Who's going to believe what I'm going to tell you now? Because it is so different from what men were expecting. But we, feel, we see here the stubborn rebellion and unbelief of people who were rejecting what God had made plain to them with regard to the Messiah and his death. Do you know Isaiah 53 is not the only passage in the Old Testament which spoke of Jesus dying. There's that very mysterious uh, verse in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where Yahweh says this, They shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and shall mourn for him as for an only son. And that's what it says in Hebrew. 
It's not, it may grammatically not make sense in English, but that's exactly what it says. It can be understood in, in, the, in the light of the Trinity. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. And of course we have Psalm 22, which is clearly a messianic psalm and speaks of the humiliation of the one who is coming as Savior. And so the, the word is there. But what we see in the Jews, uh, dear friends, this morning is this. What I have called a pick-and-mix approach to the Bible. A pick-and-mix approach. You see, they wanted to take the bits they liked and reject the bits they didn't like. Very much like people today. People like bits of Scripture that talk about the love of God or the mercy of God or the grace of God or His giving uh, uh, nature. People love that. People love that. But when you begin to talk about God's wrath, His anger, uh, then people are not so keen on that. It's a pick and, and mix. They like the bits which seem to praise men and women. They hate the bits that humble men and women to the dust as sinners. And so they wrangle with God. They wrangle with, they argue with God. Pick and mix. I wonder if you're like that this morning. If you're taking the bits that you like but rejecting the bits that you don't like. You see, pick and mix makes you the ultimate authority. Because if I pick the bits from Scripture that I like and reject the bits that I don't like, and you pick the bits that you like and then leave aside the bits that you don't like, well, who's right? Your pick, your choice, or my choice. And it comes down ultimately then, you see, to man's authority, self-authority, not the authority of God and God's Word. We are to take God's Word as we find it as he reveals it to us. First picture, wrangling with Jesus. The second picture is a warning from Jesus. Here's the warning. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus speaks into this attitude of unbelief and rebellion. And he warns them. He says to the Jews here, you have the light now, the privilege, the awesome privilege of seeing that light, beholding that light firsthand. But they will only have that privilege for a little while longer. And he urges them, he exhorts them to walk in the light while they have opportunity. To believe in the light. If you look further down at verse uh, at 36 there, he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Look at verse 46, where he talks about the same thing. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The alternative to walking in the light, Jesus says here, is to be overtaken by darkness. To be overtaken by the darkness. Consequently, to be lost. He does not know 
where he is going. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. They can't coexist. And when Christ speaks here of being overtaken by darkness, it is the complete blocking out of light. It is spiritual blindness. A blindness which is complete, even though individuals may be in knowledge about Jesus and about God and about the truth. Let me say that to you again. It is spiritual blindness, a blindness which is complete, even though people may have possession of knowledge about Jesus and about the Bible. These Jews were well acquainted with their Bible, but they were in darkness. There's a note of urgency in what Jesus says here, a note of urgency which still applies today. He says, walk while you have the light. We do not have the privilege of first-hand sight or sound of the Savior, but we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Scriptures which reveal Christ to us. We have access to the light, and Christ, Christ bids us now to follow that light before it is too late and before darkness, eternal darkness, overtakes us. Isaiah, it was Isaiah himself who recorded the seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So we have the Jews wrangling with Jesus. We have a warning from Jesus. And then we have a deeply serious picture of withdrawal by Jesus. Withdrawal by Jesus. Verse 36, the second part of it. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This was deliberate. This was a conscious act. He withdrew and he hid himself from them. And John tells us here that this is a a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy regarding the blinding and the hardening of unbelievers. Now, I know that this is a difficult subject. Perhaps some of you uh, wrestle with this. Uh, and, and perhaps at the end of the day, none of us fully understand it. But the, we, are, we are given some light here in this passage with what it means and, and how it all works. You see, while it is true that God's patience with unbelievers, is gracious and plentiful, unbelievers must never presume upon it. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God has been good to you. He's been gracious to you. He has given you these days, these days of grace and opportunity. But don't presume upon it. Don't presume upon God's patience. There are those whose attitude amounts really to this, well, God, you've got to wait my time. When it's convenient for me, I'll turn to you. When it suits me, then I'll repent. And the orientation of that thinking, of course, is all around self. What suits me? Remember that God will not have his pearls cast before swine. Just as the disciples from time to time 
were bidden to shake the, the dust from their feet in response to the unbelief of those they went to, so to, let me tell you, on the authority of God's word, God will not be dishonored by men. God will not be dishonored by men. Jesus withdrew and hid himself from them. Now, there are two highly significant things said here in verses 37 to 41, which help us to understand and to see how God deals with unrepentant sinners. We don't claim, I certainly don't claim, none of us would claim to understand fully God's eternal wrath upon sinners. Hell and God's punishment are not easy subjects to preach about. They're not easy truths to deal with, but they are part of the gospel. They are part of the revelation of God's word, and we must not shun, we must not shirk from preaching these things. And though we may not understand them, yet we must declare them as God has told us to do. So we may not understand this whole matter of God's eternal punishment of sinners, but one thing is absolutely certain. There will be no one in a lost eternity who will be able to blame God. There will be no one in a lost eternity who will be able to blame God for their fate. Now I want you to take very careful note of what is taught in these verses. Verse 37. If you've got your Bible, please follow it. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They refused to believe. That's the picture. They had the evidence before them. It was all there for them to see, for them to quantify, for them to, to, to judge, but they would not accept the evidence or the, the conclusion that the evidence led it to. They would not accept the truths that his miraculous and glorious works, signs that these signs spoke of. They refused to believe. Now, go to verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. The order here is of the ultimate importance. They could not believe because they would not believe. Let me say it again. They could not believe because they would not believe. It's not vice versa. It's not that they would not believe because they could not believe. It's, it's they, they could not believe because they would not believe. And what we have here is a problem of the will, the human will, with its flag of rebellion raised against the purpose and the grace of God. And it's exactly the same as what Christ said when he was talking to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5. And he said this to them, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You will not come to me that you might have life. Yes, they were experts in the law. They were experts in the scriptures. They were experts in religious life. But they would not come to Jesus. 
It was a problem of their will. The depraved human will. The human will infected by sin. And therefore sinners refusing to acknowledge their need, to acknowledge their sin, and to recognize the only one who could heal them. I want to bring our thoughts this morning to a conclusion in John chapter 12 here by taking you slightly further down the chapter, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. John makes it clear that Isaiah was speaking of Christ, spoke of him. Nevertheless, listen to this, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. They loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. And so, although they believed the truth with their minds, these authorities, these people of authority, they believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, unless they should be put out of the synagogue, they would not confess him. Now, I want you to take two things home with you, if you will. The tragedy is this. A faith without confession amounted to an empty faith. A faith without confession amounted to an empty faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him the dead, thou shalt be saved. Paul comments on it. Here was a faith without confession which amounted to an empty faith. But they preferred that. They preferred that. Sorry, they preferred instead of faith, a fame without the favor of God, which amounted to empty fame. They preferred a fame without the favor of God, which amounted to empty fame. And there are so many people living in our world today And they're out to make their mark in one way or another. They're seeking the approval of men. They want to leave their mark upon humanity. I have a theory. I'm sure it can be challenged. But I have a theory about many of the great sports stars and celebrities and film stars of today. Many of whom believe in reincarnation. And my theory is this. They can't live with the fact that one day they're going to die and their fame is going to die with them. They can't live with the truth that one day when they're gone, they'll soon be forgotten. One of my boyhood heroes was George Best. All of you know where I'm coming from. Um, today, if you mention his name amongst a group of young footballers, many of them will never have heard of him. 
Yet when I was young, he had the world at his feet, literally. Fame before men is passing fame. Yet this is what these Pharisees desire. A fame without the favor of God. Empty fame. Because their faith was without confession. It was an empty faith. I'm going to challenge you this morning if you're not saved. What you're living for. What is your ultimate purpose? What's the meaning of your days, your life? Where are you going? Where are you heading? And what's it all for? And for those of us who are God's children, for those of us who are God's children, the challenge is there for us to keep our focus, to realize that we are here not for our own fame, not for our own benefit, not to do our own will, not to please ourselves, but we're here for the glory of Christ. We're here that we might glorify Him. We were singing together, not I, but Christ who lives in me. Well, may the Lord bless us as we ponder very serious passage of Scripture, really, and as we seek to apply it to our own lives. We're going to close our service this morning by singing Amazing Grace, one of John Newton's hymns, of course, uh, and in that uh, collection, that only hymn book, uh, and one really which brings us back to first principles, doesn't it? That we're here, we ha- are what we are, we have what we have, simply because of the grace of God in Christ. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.